There was a, a novel put out several years ago by the young adult fiction writer Patrick Ness called A Knife of Never Letting Go. And it's essentially about this world and this environment. It's kind of an end of the world survivalist story in which the whole world has been ransacked and pillaged uh, by war. And one of the biggest weapons in this war that was released was called the noise germ. And the noise germ was this, this weapon that was released that enabled everybody's thoughts to be heard. Uh, and so this boy, the kind of the, the protagonist of the story, Todd Hewitt, this young man, is growing of age in this world where he can hear everybody's thoughts. Imagine a life like that, where you can hear everybody's thoughts, the images, the background, everything. And they simply referred to this, 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 this way of living as the noise, capital N. The noise, that never-ending stream of nonstop thoughts and images and activity that is constantly bombarding a person's mind. Part of the reason that this book hit it off so well was because it's not that unlike our experience today. Uh, It's said that the average person is inundated with about 34 gigabytes of information every day. Now, you might not understand that language. Let me rephrase it in another manner of speaking. It would be the equivalent of you being followed around by seven adults who are constantly jabber-jawing nonstop for the entire day. That is 34 gigabytes of information. Seven human beings talking to you all day long. We are constantly bombarded by uh, images, by technology, by advertisements, but not even just by type, but by words, the things people say, even unspoken things, expectations, uh, evaluations, our goals, our failures, constantly coming at us at an unprecedented pace. Uh, this is a quote by the American psychiatrist Edward Hallowell, who said this He said, Never before in human history. Have our brains had to work so much at information as today? We have now a generation of people who spend many hours in front of computer monitors or cell phones or any other thing who are so busy processing the information received from all directions that they end up losing the ability to think and feel. We can't slow down. Most of this information is superficial. Somebody say, Amen. People are sacrificing the depth and feeling, and they end up being cut off from actual people. I would take that a step farther and say, we're not just cut off from actual people and important things, but also from God. Why? The noise. We can't turn off the noise. And the noise is, it can be good things. It could be good information, It could be uh, your goals. It could be your work project. It could be dreams in the future. It could be neutral. It could just be the errands that you have, your to-do lists, things that are nagging you on your mind. And it could be bad, like Elijah, who is now listening to a threat by Jezebel. Uh, I don't know if this was like a shocking thing for him. Maybe it was because Jezebel was one of the most foreboding figures in the ancient world at that time. Very scary person. Very violent with a lot of power and corruption. Or, uh, or maybe it wasn't that. Elijah was a pretty 
powerful man himself. He had the anointing of God. Uh, He carried a sword. He spoke with the voice of God. Maybe this was just one act of opposition after a string of opposition. Maybe he just got exhausted. Maybe that was the straw that broke the camel's back. But whatever it might have been, there's noise coming at Elijah. And at this point in his life, he cracks. We're told in verse 4 that he wanders into the wilderness which is not just a a literal wilderness, but it speaks metaphorically of of the seasons in our life where life isn't working right, where things are difficult, where we can't hear God in the midst of it. For Elijah, the noise took the shape of uh, angry royalty that was in opposition to him that was threatening his life. But for us, it can be all sorts of different things. What's the noise look like for you? When I don't speak for about five seconds, what immediately fills the vacuum of my silence? Where does your mind go? When you go to bed at night, what does your mind dwell upon? When you wake up in the morning, what is your heart gripped by? What are the things that you find yourself trying to distract you from by turning on the noise? Like music, Netflix, reading, activity, relationships. What's the noise for you? One of the challenging things about the scriptures is that it doesn't just highlight that there's noise in the world. You don't have to read the Bible to understand that. All of us live in a world and in lifestyles and in relationships where we are constantly bombarded by noise. The Bible assumes that, just like we assume that. But the Bible diagnoses the problem a little bit farther It seems to suggest that the noise isn't just a product of our society. It's not just a diagnosis somewhere out there in the external world that is attacking me right now. The Bible seems to say over and over that part of the problem is that the noise is inside me. The noise is coming out from inside. Out of the abundance of your heart, Jesus would say, the mouth speaks. When you get pressed, when you get poked, the reaction that that is in the aftermath of that really just comes from your heart. It's, It's what's going on inside there. The noise isn't just outside of us and external to us, but it's actually deep inside of our minds and hearts. We see that in this guy Elijah, in this mighty prophet of the Lord, this mighty man of God, who when he's asked by God, what are you doing? Why are you in the wilderness wandering about sleeping? His immediate response seems to be to go out on the defense. He says, uh, the defensive, in, in verse 10, he says, I've been very jealous for you, God. Look at what I've done. I've been je- very jealous for you. Uh, it's all the people of Israel. They've forsaken your covenant. They've thrown down your altars. They've killed the prophets with a sword. I've been doing great. Everybody else is messing up. And where are you? That seems to be his canned response. And it almost comes out of him just so reactively, almost like a script that he plays on an answering machine, right? Just a a, a script that's just ready, just coming from the depths of his heart. I say that because later on, God will reveal himself to Elijah like he always does in ways that he's perhaps revealing himself to you right now. And even after just these wonderful acts and revelations of God, he then will ask him a second time, Elijah, what are you doing here? And it's the same response later on in this passage. 
the same response, almost like a script embedded in Elijah's mind. I've been doing all this hard work, God. Everybody else is messing up, and I can't hear your voice. Yeah, but Elijah, I'm right here in front of you. Well, I've been doing all of this work. Everybody else is messing up, and where are you? Well, I'm right here. I've been doing all of this, and over and over, like a script, played on a loop over and over. Those scripts in our heart that shape the way that we view the world, that shape the way that we view other people, ourselves, even God. Even so, so much so that even when God is speaking to Elijah, even when he speaks to us, sometimes we're not even listening, right? Sometimes I'm not even listening. I just have that script. Well, God, I did this and you're supposed to do that and where are you? And yet how kind of God to stay there even when our minds are noisy. Even when we are in the wilderness when we think all is lost. Even when we shout back at him, he can take it. And the good news of the gospel is that God is still speaking. I wanna highlight three small ways that God is speaking to Elijah. And these might be ways that if you were to stop and slow down and look back on your past, on yesterday, on the past month, on a hard season, you might see glimpses of God in your life as well that maybe you passed over because of the noise. First one is a small act of mercy. Look at verse four. Yes, Elijah wanders into the wilderness. Yes, it does appear that he's depressed and wants to kill himself. He's not eating. This is a, this is a hard end of the road for a mighty prophet of God. And yet he wanders over to a broom tree. He lays down in its shade. A broom tree was a tree uh, that was a little shrub that was about six to 10 feet tall that just offered just enough shade for a person that needed it. The thing about, uh, the thing about broom trees was they were very rare, especially in dry desert regions. It's almost as if God planted a little sign of his loving kindness. If that weren't enough, <clears throat> and think about your lives Think about the difficulties, the seasons that you've been in recently. If you were to stop and just think about it, where were those moments where God kind of showed his face, showed his mercy? If we were to stop and slow down and think about it, God was right there. I didn't even notice it at the time. I should have gotten way worse than what I did, but God, for some reason, was merciful. Right there, the shade, I see the shade. Perhaps if you were to look back on your year, you spot little moments of shade. The act of God, who, even though you don't see him, is still present and still active in your life. And he doesn't stop there. We see little acts of provision. In verse five, an angel shows up, taps Elijah on the shoulder, and says, hey, wake up, eat. And right there by his head, in the middle of the desert, is water and bread. That's awesome. Now, you might, not, uh, you might not wake up in the middle of the desert to water and bread and like a cheese, you know, a cheese board or something, but you might be able to look back if you were to slow down amidst the noise and see, like, God has provided for me. He brought me this far. I, did, I, I didn't realize it in the reactivity of the moment, in the emotional turmoil of the moment as I was freaking out, but looking back in retrospect, now that I've calmed down and looked back uh, and paid attention, I can see like little moments of God providing. He has not left me. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Even in the valley of the shadow of death, he was there with me. I just didn't realize it in the moment. It's a huge practice, a spiritual practice and discipline 
to think in retrospect, to train yourself to see that God was present and active in these moments, especially moments of difficulty. Of course, God doesn't stop there. Uh, he speaks. How many of you in your life, you can, you can look back on the seasons in your life and see God provided, he was merciful in a general way, that's fine. But really, what I want is a revelation from God. What I really need right now is for God to say something. In fact, I could go through a lot right now if I just knew God was with me and he was speaking. We have this saying in the reality family of churches, one word from God can answer a lifetime of doubts. Isn't that true? Have there been any seasons in your life in recent history where you were going through, you were going, you were getting worked, man. You were getting worked by life, by people. But if God just said something, if he just gave you a sign, it would carry you through that season. If you just knew that God was with you, that he was speaking to you, that he was guiding you, even if it was just one word, you'd be like, I can, I can carry on another few weeks. One word from God can answer a lifetime of questions. Maybe that's the problem, is that there's some people in this room who are going through difficulty, and we have not received that word. Perhaps you're doubting the nearness and the faithfulness or even the reality of who God is because you can't hear him. All you have as evidence is the difficulties that you're running into, the walls that you're colliding into, the wilderness that you're lost in. Asking yourself, God, if you're real, say something. The beauty about this story, I think is so timely for you and me, is that God is speaking. He's speaking, but he's speaking in a way that is different than Elijah is used to. I want to read that passage one more time, starting in verse 10. Elijah is complaining, I have been very jealous for you. It's Israel that's been messing up, and I'm the only one left, and I'm about to die. Verse 11, God says, get out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passes by, and a great strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And then after the wind, an earthquake. There was an earthquake all around Elijah. And yet, the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. You know what's profound about this passage? Is that one chapter earlier, God is showing up in a profound way for Elijah. Elijah is at the top of the world, literally, on Mount Carmel. And he's facing off against the false prophets of, ba of Baal. There's 400 of them. He's outnumbered, and the idea here is whose God is real? Whose God is gonna show up? And Elijah throws out a little challenge. He's like, hey, I have an idea. Let's make a sacrifice on this altar, and the God who actually answers with fire coming down from heaven, I feel like they, that would be the real God. How about that? Yeah, that sounds great. And so they do it. And they, they, they make it, the prophets of Baal make this, this altar scene. They do a sacrifice, and they're calling, they're crying out. They're doing all sorts of stuff to get the attention of their God, and it's silent. As the Old Testament says over and over, false gods are silent. And Elijah comes up, offers a sacrifice and a simple prayer, 
and fire comes down from the sky and consumes the sacrifice. Wind blows through the mountain. It is just this incredible, triumphant uh, visual display of God's power and victory. And like last week when we talked about God thundering over the waters, God thundered. These are all ways in which God has shown up in Elijah's past. And it doesn't happen again. God doesn't always show up in the way that we expect. He can't be controlled. He doesn't always show up in the ways that we're used to. But here's, here's the good news. God always shows up. He always shows up. Sometimes it's just a little bit different than what you're used to. Perhaps in order to catch your attention and to flip your equilibrium upside down so that your awareness is pointed to where it needs to be. Whoa, you got my attention now, Lord. What, it, what was that for Elijah? Then there was a sound of a thin, or excuse me, there was a sound of a low whisper. And Elijah heard it. And he came out and stood before God and prayed. Uh, that word low whisper is the best way that the English translators could capture the sense of the original Hebrew, which is actually this, the sound of a thin silence. Read that in this verse. God was not in the earthquake. He was not in the wind. He was not in the fire. He was not in the loudness. He was not in the activity. God showed up in silence. Nothing exposes the fragility and the noise of the human heart like a few moments of silence. Nothing is more uncomfortable to a person's mind than a few moments of silence. You ever experienced that? Because like Elijah, all the noise that we're used to, all the activity, the productivity, the thoughts, the words that we speak and spill out, the thing, the noise that we're used to come to depend on, hide behind, and even use to control people and situations is all of a sudden stripped away and we're left by ourselves. God showed up in a thin silence. Richard Foster, uh, the Quaker and contemplative author, in one of his books wrote this. He said, we are so accustomed to relying upon words, so many words, to manage and control others. If we are silent, who's going to take control? God will take control. But we will never let him take control until we trust him. Silence is intimately related to trust. The tongue is our most powerful weapon of manipulation. A frantic stream of words flows from us because we are in a constant process of adjusting our public image. We fear so deeply what we think other people are going to see in us that we talk in order to straighten out their understanding. That's why silence is one of the deepest disciplines of the spirit, simply because it puts the stopper on all self-justification. B, 
Being quiet before God is hard. Why? It's uncomfortable. Why? Because we can't use our words and thoughts and problem solving to justify ourselves or to fix anything. We're left alone before the presence of the living God to push the problem upon him. And for some of us, we hate that because we're problem solvers. We want to fix things ourselves. And so God draws his people into these seasons or into these moments of silence and solitude to strip them away from noise, some of it, most of it coming from their own hearts and mouths, in order to learn how to hear his whispers. I want to give you some examples of this happening. This isn't just a thing that happened to Elijah, but it seems to happen a lot and quite frequently in the lives of God's people. The first one is Moses. Not a quiet person, typically. He spoke to Pharaoh. He led a million Israelites out of slavery and into the promised land through the Red Sea. Powerful person, anointed by God. And yet, Exodus chapter 24, verse 18 tells us that there was a season before all of this where he entered the cloud and went up on a mountain. And Moses was on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. Moses, in times of solitude and silence. We see it in mighty King David, the one who slew Goliath, who took control of Israel, the mighty, powerful warrior king of Israel, the king that all of Israel would look back and say that was the closest to like a God kind of king that any of us have ever had. David, a great psalmist, would say in Psalm chapter 62, for God alone, O my soul, wait in silence, for my hope comes from him. Yeah, David was powerful, but that power seemed to come from a different place. Wait in silence, O oh my soul. The Apostle Paul, not one to mince words or spare words, he wrote a third of the New Testament. He's a word guy. And yet before all of the words, there was a season of obscurity where God called him into the desert, called him into the wilderness. Look at Galatians chapter 1, verse 17, where he says, hey, when I first got converted, I didn't go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. That's the same wilderness Elijah was in centuries earlier. And then he says, then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him for 15 days. Quiet, solitude. Mary, after being told some of the greatest news any person has ever heard from an angel, you're going to have a baby, it ain't Joseph's, it's the Holy Spirit's. Peace out, bye. <laughs> it says in Luke chapter 2 verse 19, but Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. No words. Of course, you might think of all of this as, well, yeah, all of these were frail, sinful human beings. Of course they should close their mouths and be silent before God, probably doing great. And yet even Jesus, the sinless son of God, did this arguably more than anybody. In Mark chapter 1, verse 35, at the very beginning of his life, we're told, very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary pray, a place where he prayed. Jesus goes off into quiet places to be with his Father, sometimes with words, sometimes without. 
And this wasn't just an isolated experience. Silence and solitude seemed to be Jesus' response to almost everything that came his way. In Matthew chapter 14, verse 12 through 13, silence and solitude was his response to tragic news in his life, losing his friend. Uh, in Matthew 14 and Luke chapter 5, it was his response in order to pray he would be quiet before God. Uh, he did this in the company with his closest companions, Matthew 26. He did it amid the demands of life and ministry, Mark chapter 1, verse 32. He did it in seeking guidance for major, making major decisions in Luke chapter 6. He did this to elude the crowd's attempts to control the events of his life. Anyone resonate with crowds or people trying to control the events in your life? Just Jesus? This was his response to every single thing that came his way in the wilderness. Major decisions, opposition, difficulty, crazy noise in the mind. Every time Jesus seemed to pull away from the noise and the crowds to be quiet before his God. You'd have to think as followers of Jesus that if Jesus did this so much, he must know something that we need to know. Clearly, the need to pull away from the noise was important to Jesus as he would spend that time with his father. You might be asking, why is silence and solitude so important for the Christian? I want to give you two reasons. The first one is to strip us from the noise. To pull away from the expectations of others. The radical inundation and uh, overflow of things coming our way, of what we need to be, what we need to do, how we failed, how we need to fix it, all of that stuff, to pull away from those things. In fact, in Mark chapter 6, verse 30 through 31, Jesus would turn to his apostles and tell them something. And it says in verse 30, the apostles returned to Jesus and told them all that they had done and taught. So they just got done trying to do what Jesus was doing. They saw Jesus healing the sick, casting out demons, proclaiming the gospel. The apostles are like, can we do that? Jesus is like, yeah, go do it. They go out by the power of the Spirit. They're doing all the stuff that Jesus does, as his followers should be doing. And they are just tripping out right now. They're like, Jesus, we, like, we touched this guy when we were praying and his leg grew back. Oh, my gosh. And look at Jesus' response. This is, this is wild. He said to them, okay, yeah, yeah, cool. That's cool. I do that in my sleep, whatever. But come away by yourself to a desolate, lonely place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. He even tells his disciples, there must be times in your life where you pause from the noise in order to center yourself, your soul, on the still, small voice and presence of God low whisper, that thin silence. And this takes practice. This wasn't just something Jesus did once. He seemed to do it all the time. And just like Elijah, who got this revelation of God in a silent, solitary place, still had those old scripts minutes later. As soon as God would say something to him, hey, what are you doing here? He would just rattle off the same scripts. Old scripts die hard. Amen? Old habits are there to stay. They're squatters. They don't go away simply because you have listened to some data on a Sunday morning sermon. Some of those things take practice. Digging up that ground, 
digging up that ground and digging up that ground. And some of you, some of you guys are like, okay, hand me the shovel. Give me my spiritual shovel. And this is an uncomfortable practice because we don't get a shovel. We're just called to empty ourselves of human resources and ability and ingenuity and simply be quiet before the living God as he fights and he makes himself known. Why is silence so important? To strip us from the noise in order to hear what really matters. That's my second point. And uh, at this point, I'm going to ask Robert and the rest of the team to come up as we sing. Why is silence so important? To strip us from the noise. And two, not just for the sake of silence, but to learn to hear what really matters. What really matters, brothers and sisters? The voice of the living God in your life. John chapter 10, verse 27 says, Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. There's this sense in this passage that it's not just a data transfer between God and people. That this is a true, living, interactive relationship between you and God. That is what you were made for. And we don't just hear his voice, but we become familiar with his voice. So that a stranger's voice we will not follow. In the same way that when I first met my wife, Brianna, 11 years ago, I, I, I recognized her voice a little bit, but I couldn't, I couldn't tell the difference on the phone if it was somebody else. But over the time, as I got to know who she was, year after year of growing familiar with her, I learned her voice so well, she didn't even have to speak to me. I knew what she was saying in silence. It could have been by a furled brow or like a serious look, but I was like, I know exactly what you're saying to me right now because I know you. Brothers and sisters, don't you know that that's what you were made for with the living God? Not just data transfer from afar, but a personally interactive relationship where you learn him. He already knows you. It's to know him, Galatians says, as we are known. And you can't do that when you don't stop to listen. Sometimes what we need to do is pull away from the noise in our lives in order to listen. There is a way of knowing God's presence that goes even beyond your senses. Do you know that? I'm not talking about something that you can touch or even hear or see, but something deep down within your soul uh, John chapter 7, verse 38 says, to the person that believes on the Son, that believes in Jesus Christ, out of his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. I'm talking about something beyond the senses at the deepest level of who you are, where God is interacting with you, filling your heart with joy that perhaps you can't even explain. All made possible because God looked upon our noisy estate and said, I'm coming for you. And notice that when he came, he didn't come to the political power of Rome, the noise that that is, nor did he go to the religious center of Jerusalem, the noise that that was. He came to quiet, outlying outskirts of Nazareth in this tiny, overlooked town of Bethlehem to quietly speak into the lives of shepherds, the poor, the marginalized, the distraught, the lonely, the tired, 
anybody who would listen to the whisper of God in Christ. For those of you, maybe you have lost track of that whisper. The good news is that he has never stopped being near to you, speaking to you, being active and present, trying to get your attention. The truth is, we often get distracted by the noise. And there comes a point in our life where we have to slow down, enter into the wilderness of silence and solitude, and learn how to listen to him again. I want to invite you to do that with me before we sing. And some of you might be asking, well, how do I do that? You know, I've got a, you know, I, I just started a business. I work 90 hours a week. Or maybe you might say, well, I've got kids. I'm a single parent, kids. Like, yeah, I can't get away for three years like Paul. You don't need three years. Do you got five minutes? God can multiply five minutes for the person that has faith that steps out and say, God, show up. I want to hear you. I want to sense you where we create small moments of silence when possible, where it's okay not to have words, to not solve problems, to not think about your to-do list, to not fill your mind with distraction, to not fix, where you can just use those moments, as small as they might be, maybe between the bathroom and the noise of your kids and the laundry and that stack of papers and that angry whatever it is waiting for you in the living room where you can pause in the, in the bathroom for a minute and quietly lean on God and receive whatever it is that he has for you. Those, those minutes will start to pile up if you would embrace them. If you don't know what that looks like, what I want to do before we sing is to actually practice it right now together, a moment of silence. And before we do it, I just want to give you some ways to do it. And what I'm about to tell you, you can take with you into the car except for the closing your eye part, don't take that into the car with you. You can take it into your house, into the kitchen, uh, at your job, on your lunch break. Generally, you wanna start by getting in a quiet and comfortable place. Uh, one of the travesties of, of prayer for a lot of people is that we just pray with our mind. We lob up thoughts and ideas to God. When God tells us to love the Lord our God with all of our hearts, all of our souls, all of our minds, all of our strength, that is our bodies. Prayer involves the whole person. Part of that can simply mean getting comfortable and breathing deeply. Some of you might notice that you're carrying a lot of tension in your shoulders. Sit down in your green chair right now and just allow yourself to breathe. You know you're breathing deeply if you put your hand on your stomach and it moves out. Breathe deeply. And just allow yourself to settle down. Second thing I want you to do is grab a prayer word. I like to take some from scripture. It could be anything. It could be the Lord is my shepherd. It could be here I am, Lord. It could be help. It could be anything. Grab a phrase from scripture and use that as a way to intentionally place yourself in the presence of God and there you just stay. What am I doing? What am I supposed to say? What am I supposed to do? Nothing. All you do is sit there and receive God's love be surrendered to his will and listen to his voice. No matter what happens, that's all you're doing. Inevitably, when you try to do this, that vacuum of silence will be immediately filled with thoughts and noise and to-do lists and emails and problems and the drama from yesterday. When that happens, that's okay, that's normal. 
Don't feel guilty about it. Don't, don't, don't be discouraged and stop. Rather, just understand that God is gracious with you, that he loves you, he wants to be with you, and take those thoughts and release them to God. The apostle Peter would say, cast your cares on the Lord, for he cares for you. So when those errands and to-do lists and problems come your way, just be like, oh, and just release them back to God. Use your prayer word to draw your attention back to God and receive his love, surrender to his will, hear his voice. Let's just do that for, a, for 60 seconds. Get comfortable where you're sitting and just breathe. Allow your body to be involved in prayer. Take two deep breaths. And take that prayer word from the scriptures, whatever it is, and use that as a way of inviting God, or really inviting yourself to be intentionally in the presence of God. And now let's just be there for a few seconds. So thoughts are coming, just gently release them back to God and turn your attention back to him. And let's just stay in this place for a while, receiving his love because he loves you. Surrendering to his will because he's good. Listening to his voice because he's speaking. It just might be a whisper. <laughs> 